Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. Today, I'm joined with Rob Christman from the Christmas Commentary. Thank you for being on the show today. Well, you're very welcome. It's an honor to have you on here. You know, Rob has been in the business since 1985, uh, coming up just over 38 years. And uh, today, the information that he's going to bring is from the capital markets side of the lending industry. And for those that don't know exactly what the capital markets means, uh, that is the secondary side of, of mortgages and mortgage lending and kind of where all of the the servicing and the selling and, and uh, the putting together to securitize these mortgages takes place. And it's a very interesting side, but it's a side that's not really really talked about enough, and I'm so excited to bring it to our audience today. Uh, Rob, thank you again for being on the show. You bet. So let's start with capital markets. Um, do you mind breaking that down a little bit better than what I probably just did there for our audience so they can understand that? <laughs> well, you did a pretty good job. Oh, so you. if you think about the secondary markets or the capital markets, the opposite or along those lines would be the primary markets. And when people talk about the primary markets, they are talking about loan officers or realtors dealing with the general public. That would be the primary market. You know, talking talking to borrowers face-to-face, -face, mm -hmm. processing the loans, underwriting loans, you know, the, the, that part of the transaction. The secondary markets are basically what happens after the loan closes and the borrower is in their home or has refinanced and has started to make their payments. And, <laughs> excuse me, the secondary markets have to deal with what happens to the loan after that. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about lending companies such as Bank of England, you are a loan manufacturer. You are dealing with borrowers and you're taking in the raw ingredients of, of the, you know, the, 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 the appraisal and the credit reports and the, uh, you know, you name it. Got it uh, and, and manufacturing a loan. And then Bank of England in turn sells that loan because that loan is a miniature bond. Think of a treasury bond or a, you know, a German bond or whatever monthly payments are being made. Instead of the US government making those payments, it's the borrower making those payments. So they start making those payments. The question is where are they making them and how and to whom? So the secondary markets involve selling that loan, just like selling a bond to an investor. So you may have a money manager who works for the Florida State Teachers Retirement Plan, for example, and they have cash coming in and they need to deploy that cash. They need to invest it in something safe. So oftentimes, you know, whether it's the Ohio State Troopers Retirement Plan or Florida or whatever, or a, a money manager in Taipei or Brisbane, Australia, they are looking at securities to buy and some of those securities are backed by U.S. mortgages. And so what typically happens in the secondary markets and the capital markets, because that's where the capital is, is that bond is packaged or that, that loan is packaged up with other mortgages and sold to investors around the world, whether it's a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac loan or an FHA VA loan or a non-QM or jumbo mm -hmm. loan. Typically, those are packaged up and sold in the capital markets. So, uh, fantastic, eloquent job of breaking that down for us. And, and to kind of summarize for our audience, it, you could literally have a, a hedge fund that has mortgage-backed securities in your 401k um, or in some sort of other portfolio that you're invested in. Uh, is that correct? 
That's correct. So, you know, from our audience perspective, you you actually get a mortgage, pay an interest rate on a mortgage, and then you may reinvest in other mortgage-backed air, uh, you know, bonds or, or securities that are in hedge funds that you're not even aware of. And I always find that very interesting because I think when someone gets a mortgage, I think about their mortgage and only, you know, what goes on with that when, when reality is they're invested in other people's mortgages, whether they know it or not. Yeah, I'm not going to uh, uh, go too far down this path, <laughs> but if you think about a, a steer, <laughs> you know, different parts of a steer – uh, that become meat, you know, some mm-hmm. of the, the, the ground chuck goes one place and the sirloin goes somewhere else and the, the top round and the bottom round and the filet mignon and all kinds of, you know, animal parts are flying around. So you just don't know where that part of that steer goes. When you fund a loan, you n- don't necessarily know as the borrower where that loan will be and who you're going to be sending your monthly payments to a month or two or three down the road. Bank of England, May keep part of the, may may keep the loan, or if you sell it to uh, Fannie Mae, for example, maybe Bank of England continues to service that loan, or maybe a lender will hire a sub servicer mm-hmm. who specializes in servicing loans, <coughs> or maybe that loan is sold to excuse me is sold to uh, uh, you know a, another company entirely, like a large bank, like a uh, a Chase Manhattan or Wells Fargo, mm-hmm. and so. The borrower may receive a note down the road saying, all right, uh, you know, we've enjoyed having you sending your payments to Bank of England. Great. Thank you very much. But your servicing has been transferred to Chase Manhattan, you know, JP Morgan Chase or Amerihome mm-hmm. or somebody else. So, yeah, it's a... Uh, uh, what happens in the capital markets is a little bit confusing to somebody who's not accustomed to it, but it's relatively uh, orderly and, and makes sense if you take a minute to think about it. Yeah, and what you're referring to there is the hello goodbye letter, the the one that comes in the mail at standard, where the borrower saying, hey, or the the lender at this point saying, hey, thanks for being with us, but now you're transferring here, or hey, we welcome you and you were making payments here, and that happens all the time. Uh, sometimes borrowers get really upset about that, but it happens way more than it doesn't happen, and a lot of borrowers just don't uh, understand that it's very fluid. You know, one of the things I've always wondered is, you know, talk a little bit about servicing. For just a second, you know, it's not uncommon to pay, let's say, a lender A, but lender A doesn't necessarily own that loan. They're just collecting the payments and the servicing release on it. You know, why would lenders want to do that? Why would lenders want to collect payments when they don't own the loan? Well, because of a couple of different reasons, and I'll use another analogy. Um, you know, you could own a gas station, mm-hmm. for example. Let's say you own an Exxon station. And Exxon brings in a tank, tanker full of gas and fills your underground pumps and some, somebody comes along and, and uh, turns on the pump and pumps the gas into their car. You as the gas station owner may not necessarily own that gasoline that's under the ground there. It's actually Exxon who owns it and then goes into the, uh, into the tank of the, the motorist. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> when you are making payments as a borrower to you know, Quentin and Rob's servicing company, for example. What Quentin and Rob's servicing company does is they take in, let's say, a $2,500 monthly payment. And, uh, uh, you know, Samantha Barr writes a check, $2,500, mails it to Quentin and Rob's company. We get that $2,500 check. Well, we don't necessarily own the asset based on the mortgage. We own the ability to service that loan. 
So I'll explain that more mm-hmm. in a minute here. But we get a check for $2,500. We go, okay, great. Samantha made her payment. We deposit the check for $2,500. And we take $2,490 of it and send it on to the Ohio State you know, teacher's retirement plan right. or whoever actually owns that asset. And then we keep $10 for ourselves. Well, and I'm simplifying this quite a bit, sure. but if we have enough mortgages and we're taking $10 out of each mortgage every month and sending on the remainder to whoever owns that bond backed by those mortgages, you know, it can be a nice steady income for Quentin and Rob's servicing company. The The mechanics are, are very similar to that. The numbers are a little bit different, mm-hmm. but it's important, I think, for viewers to know that whoever might own that bond may not be involved in collecting the payments. So for example, a lot of people have retirement funds or a lot of people own Exxon stock and you know Charles Schwab gets a dividend on your behalf every quarter from Exxon or whoever. Mm-hmm. And so they're the ones collecting and, and noting the fact that they receive the dividend for Exxon in your retirement plan, but it's actually your retirement plan. You own the stock. Charles Schwab is just kind of keeping records for it. The same thing can happen with servicing because the cash flow, whoever owns that bond, and let's say a, uh, uh, you know, once again, round numbers here to some extent, (coughs) Bank of England uh, sells a bunch of loans to Fannie Mae, and Fannie Mae issues a mortgage-backed security, and a money manager in Johannesburg, South Africa, buys, you know, a billion dollars worth of mortgages from Fannie Mae. Well, that money manager in Johannesburg, South Africa, couldn't care less about collecting the payments from Samantha Borrower. They want somebody, for example, here in the United States Mm -hmm. to collect those payments. So they own that billion dollar security backed by the mortgages, backed by a lot of Samanthas out there, but somebody has got to collect those monthly payments. And that's where borrowers are sending in their check to whichever company, Quentin and Rob's servicing company. And then we take the money and send it on to that Johannesburg money manager. Yeah. And to put it in perspective, I wish we had Quentin and Rob's servicing company because there is a lot of money made on that platform uh, doing servicing. And, you know, I think one of the misnomers is, you know, someone, uh, a general public goes, wow, well, you're keeping my loan for 30 years. So you're making all this interest on the loan. Uh, As the servicer, that's obviously, as you described very well there, that's not the case. But there is, there is a threshold. There is a certain amount of time. Maybe it's two years, maybe it's three, but can you explain to the audience why it's so important that when a servicer or, or an investor buys that loan, services that loan, that it that does take some time. It's not real quick. It does take at least a minimum two, maybe three years for that to become a profitable uh, situation in order not to have like an early payoff or some sort of recapture involved with that. Sure. Once again, I'll use an analogy. Uh, that's great. I'm going to I'm going to put I'm going to put you on the spot. Here, okay. All right? right. If I walked up to you on the street and said, "Quentin, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to pay you ten dollars. How much is that worth to you?" You're well, going to answer ten dollars. That's correct. You know why would you even do that? <laughs> if I'm going to if I walked up to you and said, "I'm going to pay you ten dollars a month." pay me now for $10 a month, your first question is going to be, how long? Correct. How many months? How many months? One month, it's worth 10 bucks. Two months, 
it's worth 20 bucks, three months, 30 bucks. But when you're talking about large numbers, you're discounting that cash flow back. So it's not worth necessarily, if I said a year, you would think, well, 12 months times 10, that's $120. But it's actually, when you discount that back, it might be not $120. It might be you know, $119 or $118, whatever the, the discounted cash flows are. And so the more months, the more it's worth. And if I said, Quentin, I'm going to, I'm going to give you $10 a month for the next year. You pay me 120 bucks, say, mm-hmm. and I only give it to you for six months. Well, you're out that, you're out that extra six months of yeah. income. Where's my other you, six you, months? You, yeah, you you paid one hundred twenty dollars to get ten dollars a month for the next twelve months, and I only gave you sixty bucks, and you're like, "Where's the other sixty, dude?" So, when a investor buys loans, they when they're calculating the price for those mortgages, they assume some kind of life for that mortgage, which is why when rates go up, the Companies that make a market in servicing value that servicing for those lower rate loans more highly because the value goes up because those loans, no one's going to want to refinance a two and three quarters, 30 30 year fixed rate loan. Now they may sell the house. So that may happen, but no one's going to refinance that typically. And if they have to refinance or if they need cash, maybe they'll do some kind of HELOC deal or whatever it might be on the flip side. (laughs) some months ago when rates were in the sevens. Okay. When rates were in the sevens, the investors were very hesitant about buying servicing or buying loans at those rates, because the thinking was at some point rates are going to creep back down. Who's going to refinance somebody with a seven and a half percent 30 year fixed rate loan. So I'm not going to pay much for the for that servicing because we're not going to have that loan on our books for very long. And sure enough, Rates have come down. The value of that servicing has dropped because those investors think, okay, these loans are going to pay off any month now, especially if rates start creeping down a little bit. So I don't even want that servicing. Yeah, and that, you know, so. that poses a big threat to that potential investor. And what happens is, is you're seeing exactly your point there. And there was, there's a reduced premium put on that. And there's also not enough room for everybody in the equation from the LO, from the lender, from the servicer and the investor to make money on that. So it forced higher rates in the market than what we should have had and forced more discount points in transactions than you would normally see because of what you just described. And I think what I just heard there was we had a lot of people promising 12 months, but only able to deliver six because of the threat of refinancing. So yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. You summed it up well. And so I think, you know, from our audience perspective, you know, for all of the real estate agents and lenders that are listening, even the general public, you know, if you bought a home in the last eight months, you are, you lived what we just described there. And as rates are kind of creeping back down, uh, a lot of that disparity is being removed uh, or, uh, you know, that, uh, that differential, that unwanted differential in the markets being removed and you're seeing less discount points and more, uh, more, more favorable rates because of that and more attractiveness to the secondary market too. So that kind of leads me to my next question. You know, a lot of those rates increase, um, contrary to the news is not because the federal reserve raised the fed funds rate. Uh, it, it, you know, that might be a byproduct, but that's not the direct reason why it mainly you're going to see is because of inflation and the way it's been roaring. And now we've started to see it kind of come back down because obviously it's a 12 month lagging index. But do you think, do you think we're, 
we've peaked at inflation? Uh, do you think it's going to keep coming back down? Do you think we're going to continue? Like once we get past really May and June of this year, we're starting to replace lower uh, lower readings per month at that point. Do you think we continue to come down or have we hit like kind of a, a, a you know, like a stagnation type area right now with inflation? When is this being aired? <laughs> Fair uh, question. So for the audience, we're recording on January 19th. This will air at the end of the month. Okay. Um, I, I asked that a little kind of tongue in cheek because right. the, uh, you know, when some, some things, uh, uh, people will make a forecast and then, yeah. you know, I, I could sit here and say, well, we're, we're done with, uh, you know, inflation. And then, you know, the consumer price index comes out next and, and uh, suddenly that prediction has gone out. Yeah, we the got window. a false reading. But, yeah. but I will say that we've seen three months of very good inflation news, both at the consumer level with the consumer price index and with the producer price index, the PPI. Yeah. And so the <clears throat> it is thought that the Federal Reserve, who doesn't set interest rates, doesn't set mortgage rates, by the way. Correct. Most people know the Federal Reserve as lending stability to the banking system, which it does. But the Federal Reserve has been in the headlines because the FOMC, which is the Federal Open Market Committee, which is the operating arm of the Federal Reserve, has been raising short-term rates. And the question is, why has it been doing that, namely to combat inflation? Um, So the Federal Reserve does not set mortgage rates. But the same factors that motivate the Federal Reserve to act also impact the bond market. So if inflation appears to be out of control, the bond investors say, whoa, you know, this isn't good. Inflation isn't good. You know, too much inflation isn't good. A little bit's okay, but it's not good. And so they act differently than if things are stable. With the Federal Reserve, They've been in the headlines almost constantly in terms of the financial markets and mm-hmm. mortgage market and so forth and so on. If you go back to, uh, let's say, early 2020, nobody was predicting a pandemic. Nobody was predicting the housing market would skyrocket. Nobody was predicting rates would plummet. But that's exactly what happened. We get hit by the pandemic. You know, rates rates go down because the Federal Reserve says, whoa, we need to, in order to create stability in the U.S. economy, we're going to lower rates, make it easier to borrow borrow, and try to stimulate the economy a little bit because people are hunkering down. And when mm-hmm. you hunker down, you know, you're not going off to vacations in Europe or, or you know, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, so you're dealing with a market that the Federal Reserve was saying, wow, all right, let's, we need to do this. We need to lower rates, keep things going. The pandemic wears on. And suddenly, as the pandemic is winding up, and let's, let's just say the pandemic has ended, and I'm sure there are people on, sure. on listening to this who think there never was a pandemic, and I'm sure there are people <laughs> on here who think we're still in the middle of, of uh, you know, there's tens of thousands of COVID deaths a month, and we're still in the pandemic. But anyway, let's just say, because I can wear, I can, I can walk through an airport without wearing a mask. Let's say that the worst part of the pandemic is over with. Agreed. Anyways, we were coming out. You had millions of families, not only in the United States, but around the world with a lot of pent up demand to go out to Olive Garden or go to Disneyland or go see, you know, Uncle, you know, Uncle Lester in, uh, in California, whatever it might be. I did have an Uncle Lester, by the way. <laughs> but the uh, uh, fact of the matter is you had a lot of pent up demand out there 
from millions of people, billions of people around the world. And so as the pandemic was winding up, inflation started to become an issue because people started emerging and they wanted to do all this stuff. And they started going to restaurants and going on trips and buying you know, new shoes and so forth. So demand for goods and services went up. The labor market got constrained. And so prices started to go up and the Federal Reserve said, whoa, this isn't good. Mm-hmm. We're going to start raising rates. And that's exactly what we saw right at the end of 2021 and into 2022. And the Federal Reserve was definitely playing catch up in early part of 2022, Agreed. trying to you know slow the economy down a little bit. Um, now it is finally having an impact because the inflation numbers that we've seen over the last three months have, have actually come down. They've been better than expected. So it appears that the actions of the Federal Reserve are having an impact on the U.S. economy. Because if you think about the U.S. economy, it's like an aircraft carrier or, you know, times, you know, a million, million aircraft carriers. It takes a while to turn, takes a while to stop, takes a while to, to do things. And so the actions that the Federal Reserve has been taking have had a cumulative effect on things. Mm-hmm. It's taken a while, but now we're seeing the result of that. And now what we're going to start seeing, I think, in the press is, gee, are we going to have a soft landing, <laughs> for example? Yep. Are we, you know, are we going to plunge into a recession? Or can the Federal Reserve engineer some kind of soft landing that doesn't drive the economy into a recession? I think we're starting to have some optimism that that's exactly what we're seeing. Because we've been talking about having a recession for a long time. I just don't see it in the jobs numbers uh, certain parts of the economy are slowing down, but still the economy is humming along and gross domestic product is good. Like I said, the employment data has been good. Inflation has been okay. So I don't, I don't necessarily personally think we're going to go into a, a deep recession. Maybe it'll be a shallow recession or maybe we won't see much of a recession at all, but that's exactly what's pushing rates these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, there was a lot to unpack there. And, uh, you know, I just kind of want to circle back, you know, one of the one of the things that I think about with the Federal Reserve, and what they're going to do is every time they do a rate hike, that takes, you know, 120 days, 180 days to cycle through this massive US economy, it's not instantaneous by any means. And as you well described there, this million time size aircraft carrier, the largest economy in the world, it takes time for it to make its way through there. And we've had, you know, I think six rate hikes during that time. And we're probably just now seeing the results of, you know, some may argue the only three of them. The other ones have not even made their way through yet, and we're already seeing positive signs of inflation coming down, which bodes the question of, you know, when the Federal Reserve here meets in a couple of weeks, you know, is their ideology they go to a quarter, do they stay the course at a half a point? That'll be interesting to see how that goes. But I think, I think Wall Street wants to see them go to a quarter and, or nothing at all at this point, which brings up a question I was going to ask you. As we've been doing all of these things during 2020 to help the economy, um, you know, mainly infusing a lot of money into the economy. And as you mentioned, a lot of people received that in their mailboxes. A lot of companies got PPP loans. A lot of pent-up buyer demand was happening, and then it just kind of went out there. And this velocity of money became very great and rampant, which is added to inflation. Do you think the Federal Reserve, by raising rates as quickly as they have, have they put a stress on the national debt at – I think I looked at this morning is about $31.5 trillion. Is there, a, is there a notion that the debt servicing on that becomes too expensive the more we continue to raise these rates? Well, I have uh, two answers to that. Okay. Um, the, 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 the quick answer would be yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about it, 
if I think about it, if one thinks about it a little bit, <coughs> the U.S. government in some ways is like a household. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've had borrowers come to you in the last few years, especially 2020 and 2021, who their monthly payment was $2,500 a month. And you were able to, through refinancing them through Bank of England, get them down to you know $1,800 a month. I and so they save, they save $700 a month. And uh, when you take that over the year, you know, they save $8,400 a year. Well, that's, you know, that's, that's a car payment or mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's a, that's a new car or whatever it might be, or that's a community college education, whatever you want to say about it. You save them, you know, visible money, you know, sizable chunk of funds. Well, just like borrowers, millions of borrowers have been helped during 2020, 2021, by refinancing their debt into lower rates, the U.S. government was doing the same thing. And cities were doing the same thing. And counties and state municipal bond market bonds, they were doing the same thing. They were refinancing that debt mm-hmm. at much lower rates. And so the U.S. government may have had a bond payoff that they were paying 8% on. And when they can refinance it at 2% or 1.5%, they can save a lot of money, just like households save a lot of money by refinancing. So the the, the quick reaction is, yeah, the, the U.S. economy is strained. Um, gee, all this debt, there's you know trillions and trillions of dollars of debt and so forth. But the U.S. government, I think, has done a very good job of refinancing a lot of their debt and lowering their monthly nut, as it's called, uh, <laughs> and making it more affordable. So I think we're on much better footing as mm-hmm. a government, just like a lot of households are on a much better footing in terms of being able to uh, just deal with their monthly cash flow because they were able to refinance. The U.S. government has done the same thing. So are you suggesting that some of the debt we have outstanding with other countries, we were able to refinance that as they lowered their rates as well, um, and, and as well as our own internal debt? Right. That's inter- that's a that's a great thought. I have not thought of that, and that haven't had that brought to my attention. I've asked that question I, countless times, so that's a wonderful answer and something new that I'm aha moment. I'm immediately taken away from this. So uh, that's that's fantastic. You mentioned soft hard landing. You know, for our audience, um, a soft landing would be something ideal where we have no recession. The Federal Reserve, when they say soft landing, they mean like landing a plane softly. That's the that's the analogy there. And a hard landing would be like landing a plane with no wheels. Um, that would be the that'd be the description here. And we no one wants that. Um, but in between there, you mentioned the word recession. And, you know, for years, historically, you know, the definition uh, it, by itself is two negative GDPs in a row, and then it's deemed later on by an, an outside agency. But it appears that the uh, the goalposts right now in that equation have been moved a little bit. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of people saying, well, we never, we're not in one, it didn't happen at all. And then we had this third quarter GDP number rise up, um, which a lot of people will argue there were some things in there that caused that, like the U.S. dollar being so strong because of inflation and the oil and the trades that we made on that, um, and then also, you know, lowering some of the cost of that as well. So are are your thoughts, are we in a slight one right now, or are we not? There's there's a economics uh, joke about a... a, a a depression, the definition of a depression is when you're out of work. Depression, I'm, I'm sorry, recession is when you're out of work and depression is when I'm out of work. <laughs> uh, you, could, you could use that somehow with regard to the soft landing or the hard landing. The, the recession in some extent, to some extent, 
is psychological okay. to some extent is actually numerical and statistical. And you termed it very well by saying an outside agency, and I forget the, the acronym for the agency, but they come in later and look at the past and say, oh yeah, we were in a recession, mm-hmm. you know, in January of 2023. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of behavioral economics. I, when I think about myself, uh, which I do every day. Uh, but, but in terms of, in terms of where my mind is like, do if I need a pair of pants or if I want to buy macaroni and cheese, or if I want to go, you know, have a cold beer at the local bar, you know, what goes through my mind when I think about those decisions, if mm-hmm. I want to take a trip to Switzerland, for example, do I, do I not do it because I'm afraid of my, I'm going to lose my job or because it's too expensive? How am I, reacting to what's going on around me in terms of my, you know, economics of my buying decisions, what I'm doing financially, where am I putting my money, my savings? And I like to think that <coughs> I'm kind of indicative of millions of people around the United States who are making those same kind of decisions about macaroni and cheese mm-hmm. or, or vacations or buying new pants Starbucks, or whatever it might be. Et cetera. Yeah. Going to Starbucks. Do I want to pay you know, $8 for a latte. Well, heck no. I'm going to, you know, I can, I can. (laughs) That's Starbucks, but yeah, this is a homemade one here. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. The, uh, so the fact of the matter is when I go by, when I go to a restaurant and I see the restaurant's full or I go to the local tavern and the tavern's full, or if I go to the airport and the airplane's full, or if I go, you know, on a, on the ferry ride across San Francisco Bay or, or off to Staten Island in New York and the, and the ferry is full. I think, all right, people are making kind of the same, they have the same mental outlook that I have in terms of spending. And Mm -hmm. yeah, the ticket on the Staten Island ferry went up, but they're still, it's still full. And the airline tickets may have gone up in price, but the airplane is still full. So I think that what we're seeing is a lot of the savings that accumulated during the pandemic mm-hmm. are now being spent. I'm going to throw the question back to you a little bit here okay. in a few minutes or a minute or two, because I've heard that borrowers that a lot of lenders are seeing now have run up their credit cards and so forth. So I'll, I'll, I'm going to ask you that in a second. But in terms of the economics and, and where we stand and if we're in a recession right now or not, I I just don't see us being in a recession Things have slowed during in certain parts of the economy, you know, especially high tech. It's important for people to know, though, that the stock market is not the economy. Yes. All right? The stock yes. market is not the economy. So stocks may go up and down. Tesla stock, I don't care about Tesla stock. I don't own any Tesla <laughs> stock. You know, it's plummeted. I, I feel sorry for everybody who had their entire retirement plan mm-hmm. in Tesla stock or, or whatever stock, uh, uh, Rivian trucks whatever it might be. So certain parts of the economy has slowed down. You know, how many iPhones do we really need or how many new laptops do we really need? Mm-hmm. But a lot of parts of the economy seem to be doing okay. You know, some of the basics like, you know, water stocks or food stocks or whatever it might be, some mm-hmm. of the staples that we need every day, people are willing to pay um, to go have an $8 beer or a $15 beer at a ball game. They're okay with that. They're still you know, they're still going to the NBA games or playing football, you know, watching football or whatever. They're still doing that. Um, So I just don't sense a a recessionary environment right now. The mood is not 
down so much. But what are you seeing in terms well, of bars that come across your desk? Well, that's a great question. You know, from a behavioral economic standpoint, I uh, had a clip go online and it went viral over 110,000 views. And it was exactly what you just said. We were talking about when you go to the restaurants, they're too full. You know, my, my point in that was that we have to stop the spending. It doesn't mean you got to make less. We just have to stop spending as much as we're spending uh, as a society to help counter this inflation that's going on right now. And I used the Starbucks examples and things that you were talking about. And uh, there was more people that liked it than didn't. But the ones that didn't were very vocal about what they didn't like about that. Um, and what I found with that was no one likes to be told how to spend their money. Now, I get that. But also no one wants to be told that they received money during COVID um, that helped increase the savings rate, to your point, was the highest I think we had seen in the U.S. And now we're back to pre-pandemic levels, lower, one of the lowest savings rate. I think it was 2.4 last time I checked, uh, which is not good. And you combine that to your point about credit card debt. You know, I just saw on the uh, consumer spending report that came out for the month of November. Now, this doesn't include the holiday season. You know, we're at $925 trillion in credit card debt as a country. Um, the record's 927. And as we speak, I'm pretty sure we're well over that. Um, and that doesn't include online shopping that does the buy here, pay later, because we can't account for those types. They never hit the credit report. So, you know, when those six months come due, they're going to put that back on a credit card. That's how that works. And the debt's going to go up even more. And 47% of America is not paying their credit card in full right now, which means they're either making minimum payments or they're making partial payments, but they're not paying it off. Um, and the average rate on that debt right now is 19.6%. Well, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. And, you know, and, and as long as these credit card companies keep issuing new debt, that also is compounding inflation because we're creating new dollars. And I mean, they keep adding more debt to the to the you know the revolving credit card cycle. We're adding new dollars. A lot of people don't even consider what you mentioned earlier, but all the refinancing, all the the new purchasing, that's adding new dollars to to the financial system. And so, when a new credit card is issued or the debt limit is extended on that credit card, you're adding new dollars, thus adding and compounding to the inflationary problem. And now we're doing that at nineteen point six percent average. So bodes the question, you know, let's 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 quickly dive into yeah. this real quick. You know, at some point, these major credit card companies, you know, Jamie Dimon probably has the biggest outlook of anyone on this. And he said a, a hurricane is brewing in the consumer credit market right now. And he specifically is revolving to the credit card, excuse me, referring to the credit card debt, because there's no recourse for credit card companies at all. I mean, if a consumer files bankruptcy, if they can, it's not like the credit card people come back and say, hey, give me that, give me that cup of coffee you bought. Give me that microphone I'm talking on right now that, that if you paid for that on a credit card, there's no recourse. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where consumers are, they're kind of figuring it out. And I think they're debt financing their lives. And, and the stats agree with me to go to those restaurants you just described, to go to that tavern, um, to, to pay for these things. It's a lot of it's being put on credit card, essentially on money that's not there, which is why 47% of Americans are choosing not to pay it in full. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family and I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. 
They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. www.boemortgage.com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. The fact of the matter is, uh, yeah, people people have been spending. You know, interestingly enough, though, the employment numbers continue to point to very low unemployment. So people have jobs. True. Uh, wages have been going up mm-hmm. somewhat steadily, maybe a little less than expected, but that's okay. So the wages have been doing okay. They've been kind of keeping pace with inflation, or at least the current inflation rate, perhaps. So I think that, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. Debt debt is a big part of our economy, whether it's mortgage debt or student loan debt or credit card debt. Uh, you know, governments have debt. So, yeah, the, the numbers that you mentioned there are uh, are truly you know eye opening. Yeah, they're they're staggering. And, you know, the thing about wage inflation, you said, I thought was interesting. I'm, I was guilty of this probably six months ago. I thought that might have been adding to some of the. The, the inflation, but the reality is wage inflation doesn't hurt the economy as long, well, let me back up, it doesn't hurt the inflation or add to it as long as that money's not being spent at the level that it's being raised. If people would just save their money, right, if they could and not have to spend it due to their habits, then we wouldn't have that sector worrying about inflation. But because the spending is happening at the same rate in which the wages are going up or maybe even higher, that's when wage inflation starts to come in the conversation, not necessarily uh, wage inflation causing uh, or adding to inflation. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I recently stumbled onto that one and thought, wow, Q, you messed so up. So have you, uh, throwing it back at you again, mm-hmm. have you had to <clears throat> deny some borrowers a loan or tell them to come back in a couple months and work with them in lowering their debt because of their debt levels? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Our, our organization and it's across the industry, I believe most people are dealing with either. And, and, and some just what's crazy is the first thing that gets attributed to that is the rise in rates, right? They go, oh, it's, it's affordability of the rates. I, I think if we actually dove into those applications, we would recognize it's a combination of the rate increase and the debt load that's been taken on, uh, not just in credit cards, but even the average car loan. Um, you know, the, the debt load that people, you know, I've been doing this for 21 years. And when I first started, if you had above a $500 car, like a $500 car payment was a big deal. I can't find those on a credit report right now. They don't exist. You know, you've got people that are settling into, you know, I, I always joke the 900 is the new 500 and it's absurd. Um, some of the debt that's being put out there and it's really kind of, uh, it's, it's stopping people from affording some of these new home prices that have kind of increased because of COVID. Hmm. Um, good. Yeah. So as we move in here and you talked about rates, you hinted around this earlier, and I kind of uh, want to talk about this because this is interesting to me. Do you think rates continue to come down? Do we see rates get down into the fives, maybe even the low fives? Uh, and is five the new three or do you think we go below five? I would be truly shocked if we went below five. Okay. The, you know, we shot up, uh, you know, into the sevens mm-hmm. some months ago. We've come back down into the sixes, uh, and depending on the pro, we're just talking about thirty years. We're just talking generic Fannie thirty years, agency thirty years, generic, yes, not some, some three one or five one intermediate arm. So rates have come down, and you have to ask yourself: lower rates are nice, but why are they? Why have they come down? You can come down. You know, rates can come down because of a pandemic, <laughs> right? Because everybody stops spending and the economy grinds to a halt and you mm-hmm. try to lower rates to help spur the economy on. 
rates can come down because inflation is very much under control. But when you talk about 30-year rates in general, it's important to remember that part of mortgage rates involve the, uh, not only the bond market and where general interest rates are, but also credit risk mm -hmm. that you have with those borrowers who are backing those, you know, who, who are getting those home loans. So, but that aside for the time being, and I think maybe we just talked about it a couple of minutes ago with regard to credit card mm -hmm. debt, but in general, rates have come down because investors feel that the Federal Reserve is having a positive impact on the economic climate. So the expectation is that if inflation stays under control or continues to drop, interest rates will continue to drop. Are we going to get back to a two and three quarters, 30 year fixed rate loan? No, I, I would, I would, not a chance. I, that's not, it's not going to happen. Can we get into the fives? Certainly. Yeah. If the economy, you know, and, and overall, overall, the economy's doing okay. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not, there's not a catastrophe brewing, brewing, just like overall, except for Russia and Ukraine, the world is kind of a peaceful place right now. Correct. People don't, people don't like step back and think, you know, there's not, you know, we're not at war anywhere. Things aren't, you know, North Korea isn't firing missiles at Japan yet. China's <laughs> hasn't invaded Taiwan yet. You know, the, the overall, the world is a pretty peaceful place right now. Overall, the U.S. economy doing okay. Mm -hmm. All right. We're doing okay. So, but there's always that sense that something's going to happen. Right. We need to talk about something that's going to happen six months down the road. Nobody has a crystal ball, but gee, what could happen? What may happen? Could rates go down? Yeah, they could go down, but it's important for people to know why they would go down. And to your point, do we want another pandemic? No. Do we want a depression or a recession? Not really, but those things tend to drive rates down. Mm -hmm. But the third thing is just the Federal Reserve is keeping the economy stable and the economy is kind of doing its thing and inflation is under control and and so on. And I think that will make rates gradually go back down. I would say 30-year rates in the fives, definitely a possibility. That said, I don't think any loan officer or any, you know, no loan officer that I know of is telling a potential borrower, you know what, come back in six yeah. months. I think <laughs> rates will be lower. Correct. You know, let, put off your buying decision for another six months because you know what, you'll be better off. I don't think anybody's saying that. I think to some degree, borrowers have become accustomed to interest rates where they are. And if you really want a home and you know you have a, a family or you just want a house or whatever, you want to get out of your parents' basement or you're tired of living with your roommate or whatever it is, you're tired of the landlord raising, the rate, raising the, your rent, mm -hmm. you want a home. And yeah, rates are where? Okay, well, let's figure out if the monthly payment works. Correct. And what companies like Bank of England are doing is saying, you know what? Yeah, rates have gone up, but you know what? We've got this great down payment assistance program. We've got this bond program and we have this intermediate arm program. We can figure this out. And you know what? You don't need 20% down to buy a home. You can do it with much less down. And so good loan officers are figuring out ways to help borrowers almost regardless of interest rates. And yeah, the, the rise in rates have imp has impacted affordability. Rates have come back down. Could they come back down? They probably will. I think I think the Fed's doing an okay job. We're always second guessing the Fed, but I think overall we're doing it's doing a good job. And so yeah, rates could could easily I, I think the I think the the odds of rates coming back down a bit is greater than the odds of rates going up.
Yeah, I would agree. So I would agree. My two cents. No, no, I appreciate it. That's great. And, you know, one of the things that we kind of talked about pre-show here that I think is important is, is there a dark side to rates coming down quickly or coming down at all based off where we just were six months ago? Well, you don't want to get into a um, a volatile interest rate environment, just uh, like you don't like a volatile stock market environment. Mm-hmm. And interest rates shooting up as they did in the first part of 2022 was not a good thing for for borrowers. It wasn't a good thing for lenders. It wasn't a good thing for the capital markets because investors got spooked. It's mm-hmm. like, holy smokes, what's going on here with rates? We also don't want to see rates you know, do that. I mean, lower rates are fine, but getting there like that Correct. is a lot different than, you know, it's like landing a plane. Correct. You know, that's good. Slow and steady, that's but not. a deep dive is a problem. <laughs> right. Not good. So you have a situation where, once again, you think about what's going to cause rates to do that. Well, don't want a pandemic. You don't want a recession. You don't want a depression. You just want a stable environment with low inflation. And I think that's what we're getting now. If, if you talk about a, a possible negative impact of, of lower rates, Sure. As we talked about earlier in the show, everybody who has a 7.5% or 7% 30-year fixed rate loan, they're going to be first in line to refinance that that loan. And so if you are the owner of that cash flow from that 30-year 7 or 7.5% loan, it's going to come to an end. And that's mm-hmm. already kind of priced into the market to some extent. But there's not a lot of negatives to interest rates assuming a more steady, normalish level. I will argue that mid-2020, you know, rates were abnormally low because of the pandemic. The, you know, the Federal Reserve had lowered rates to near zero to try to spur economic activity. Now, economic activity is going on. Rates have gone up. And there's a, there's a kind of a, uh, a nice level of interest rates. I, I think we, we have a ways to go down mm-hmm. more. I don't think we're there yet. But um, I, I think that there's not a lot of negatives other than, you know, people refinancing their mortgages. Right. Uh, with rate, you know, a good stable rate environment, you know, 30 year, 30 year fixed rates in the fives. I think we could, we could probably live with that. Yeah. If we did have a deep dive, if we did have a quick shift, let's say we have a war. Um, one of those attacks you mentioned happens, the calls to drive in the U S to, to help with that. And that could accelerate maybe a, a, a deep dive could, well, What's the dark side of that as far as margin calls in the secondary market? Yeah, getting back to the <laughs> secondary market and capital markets in general. Um, if you have a, um, uh, now I don't know how deep you want to get into hedging a, a mortgage <laughs> pipeline, but might if be a you much, own a, what's that? I said, we might be a little much for the audience, but I love it. I know what you're, I yeah. love it. Well, if you, if, if you have sold a bond, to Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs or some investment bank, and you've sold it at this price, and they expect you to deliver a bunch of mortgages at that price, and suddenly rates have gone down, and you don't have that bond to deliver, Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs is going to come back to you and say, hey, make up part of that difference now, because that's a big difference. And we want to make sure that we at least get some of that money Mm -hmm. now. And when you talk about margin calls, that's basically what a margin call is. That could happen. That has to be pretty dramatic Mm -hmm. uh, because typically you're dealing with instruments, bonds that, that are every month are settling at a certain price, you know, January, February, March, April, May. And so you kind of scale into it. So Mm -hmm. the margin calls that we saw, back in early 2020 or mid 2020 
that was because of the dramatic market shift. Right. Uh, and you're right, we could get we could that could happen again, but it's highly doubtful unless once again we get you know the pandemic flares up again or or something happens to really drive interest rates down. Um, so. Yeah, I don't. I think the likelihood is pretty slim of yeah. that happening. No, I agree. Steady, steady, and uh, you know, declining ever so slightly per month is probably the realistic aspect. But you know, you going back to you mentioned the economy is in good shape, and you talked about early 2020 when the Fed worked to get rates basically to zero, just a little bit above it. It really sparked economic um, growth, economic uh, activity. Is it to be? Is it fair to say that not referring to the economy, but to the stock market, as these rates, these short-term rates, are continuing to rise, does that detour uh, the stock market from borrowing more short-term money and creating more activity, more jobs per se, more products, more facilities? And does that affect earnings? Is that what we're seeing show up in the earnings sector here in some of the first quarter earnings that are coming out? And you know, maybe even the second quarter they're going to be negative because they've been propped up on so much, you know, opportunities that, that now those opportunities may not be taken advantage of at this rate cost that the federal reserve has kind of helped rise a little bit. Well, um, I guess we'll find out. Right. But I don't, I don't, uh, um, yeah, I think that the stock market, once again, the stock market is not the same as the economy. And so what's going on in, in with certain segments of the economy, you know, Apple computer or, or Amazon or, you know, I, I, I saw a headline this month, you know, Microsoft laying off 5% of its workforce, 10,000 people. That, well, that's a lot of layoffs. Mm-hmm. And Microsoft, I don't know when the last time you bought any Microsoft, uh, a Microsoft product was. It's been a long, long time for me, if, if ever. Same here. Uh, but the, um, yeah, there, there could be some of that fluff that, that we'll see in the first, in the economic, in the um, earnings that come out. Uh, but we won't know that until... Uh, you know, April and May of this year, but um, you know, it could, it could happen. It could happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say it won't. Okay. Fair enough. Now I love this question because you are in a position where I think anyone could answer it probably better, but excuse me, no one could answer it better than you moving (laughs) into 2023. I'm setting you up here, so I apologize, but moving into 2023. All right. I feel like there's a lot of consolidation that's happening in our industry right now. Um, I feel like, you know, these cycles happen and we've got out of the crazy cycle. And now, you know, there was innovative, crazy, and then consolidations before we get back to normal. And all industries go through this. But I feel like our industry right now is on the verge of the consolidation phase and also maybe lenders just getting out of the market phase. Do you have any predictions for 2023? Do you believe there'll be more consolidation and more lenders get out of the industry? I do. And, and you're looking, I do, I do think that when you're talking about the lending industry or the vendors that That's supply correct. those lenders, yes, sir. Um, uh, you know, it may even happen in, in the real estate industry in terms of companies that are merging to, to, you know, take the best and brightest agents and the back office support and so mm-hmm. forth marketing efforts. Um, I think we've, we've seen a fair amount of that in 2022. I think we're going to see more of it in 2023. The fact of the matter is the lending environment, we're supposed to be, the MBA thinks we, as an industry, will do about $2 trillion in 2023. Okay, That's about half of where we were in 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. It's down some from 2022. The companies, a lot of companies, smart companies, have made the necessary cuts they need to make in order to at least break even, if mm-hmm. not make a little money, uh, especially if rates go down a little bit and volume picks up a little bit. But you have a situation where owners 
may not want to go through another business cycle. Maybe they've had enough. Maybe they don't want to just break even with their money, with their money right now. Maybe they have a, uh, you know, a friendly competitor in another state that if they combine accounting departments and capital markets departments and marketing departments and so on, there can be better economies of scale. Mm-hmm. And so they agree to, to merge two companies into one and, and therefore they become even more efficient. I think that some companies out there, the larger lenders, retail lenders are definitely interested in picking up good branches elsewhere and good loan officers elsewhere. I think that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think 2023 will have just, you know, as many mergers and acquisitions as we saw in 22 in the in lending and vend, uh, vendor environment. Yeah, no, it definitely feels that way. And, you know, I think to your point about the executives, owners that let's just call it what it is, they made a tremendous amount of money in 2020 and 2021. And maybe they lived through the 08, 09, 7, 6 cycle and said, you know what, I'm just not going to do this again. Like I'm going to take my money and run. And, and we've seen some large companies shut down, like completely cut off their retail environment. And you kind of get the notion that was what was happening. These execs. Yeah. And that, and, and that will help those remaining, <laughs> yes. you know, bank of England. It will. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. So what technology do you see changing in 2023? You know, I read a lot of your commentary. You do a great job at talking about that stuff. Do you mind sharing a little bit with our audience? Uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, they, there, there are some amazing products that are out there now mm-hmm. that have really helped lenders. Um, but in terms, there's so much technology that, that frankly... You know, I, I don't I can't keep track of it all, whether you're talking about loan origination systems or automatic underwriting systems mm-hmm. or, or subservicing systems or, um, you know, a, 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 you know, fee collection uh, or uh, compliance, you know, quality control. I mean, it just runs the gamut. And there's there's lots of companies in, in most of those spaces who are offering some really nifty products for lenders. So I don't I don't. You know, and I'm not privy really to any inside information like, oh, wait, you know, ABC is going to come out with this in three months. So that'll change the industry kind of thing. I think that it's obviously in vendors' best interest to, to, to continue to be on the cutting edge and figure out what best helps their lender clients mm-hmm. and, and always listen to what the, uh, ven- uh, what the lenders are saying. Like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had this? So the vendor can go back to the drawing board and figure out, oh, how can we get them what they want? Yeah. And woe to any vendors, and I'm not going to name any names, uh, but you know who you are, who <laughs> who don't listen to clients or whose customer service is not as good as their competitors, because I don't think that's a recipe for success in the long run. Oh, I agree. Um, so no, I agree. Do you think I, I often get asked this and I think for me, cause I'm in the business and probably you too, it seems such an absurd question, but it, it, it bodes the question still to be asked. Do you think technology can take the place of a loan officer? <laughs> Shaking his head immediately. No, no, I, I agree with you. I don't think, I think there's a human aspect that will always have to be there at some capacity. And I think there's yeah, some companies not, that you yeah, know who I, they I, are that want to do that. Yeah. It just doesn't, um, it's not, I don't just don't see the loan officer going the way of the, uh, you know, tallow salesman or the lamplighter. Um, you know, I can go on and, and book an airline ticket in, in three or four or five minutes using my credit card and a laptop, but there's so much difference between a uh, refinance or buying a home 
and buying an airline ticket. And if we found out anything during the pandemic, it's how important the personal touch is in explaining the process and, and holding borrowers' hands. It's, it's very, very important. And to have a subject matter expert um, in your camp, if you're a borrower, especially a first-time home buyer, uh, to have that person there, you know, not necessarily answering calls at 11, 8, 11 p.m. on a Friday night, but just to explain what is an escrow holdback account yeah. or what is mortgage servicing or why do I even need an appraisal? You know, things like that. People like to hear the answer from people. I, I completely agree. You know, when we're talking about load officers, something that I always wonder if and when this is going to happen. When does compensation for loan officers go from volume to units? What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, how long? How, <laughs> how much time you got, buddy? Yeah, no. Uh, how I, much time? Uh, uh, it's an interesting question because you know I, I've run a division, and uh, it's no secret. Been doing that for quite some time, and and you know I often ask this question. It's almost like no one wants to do it first because you'll get slaughtered by recruiting. Um, but it's something that I think I you almost wonder does the industry look at that as a whole at some point? Sure, it does. Uh, you can see you can see some changes that have taken place over the last few years. If you look at the bank or credit union model, mm -hmm. depository bank, they pay their loan officers much, much less. You know, oftentimes if you're, if you're an originator at a credit union, maybe you're making 4,000 a month and so much per unit. Um, banks are, are, you can do very well with depository banks, but still independent mortgage banks are much higher. But then you get into companies that are changing compensation based on lead source. Correct. Gee, Quinn, if we're going to give you your leads, we're not going to pay you whatever we were paying you on those. Mm -hmm. So you have the ability to, to, you know, get leads coming through the door, but they are taking part of your compensation and putting that into marketing, mm -hmm. for example, lead generation. So we're going to pay you less, but you're going to get more leads. Or you can do the old-fashioned way, we're going to pay you the old scale, but you're going to have to go out and hunt and kill your own, you know, figure it out. And so there are, there are different things that are going on in the industry with regard to compensation, but you're right. No, nobody wants to be the first penguin in the water. That's right. As it were in terms of, Oh, we're going to cut everybody's compensation. I've seen companies scale back compensation and put their money into training, put their money into marketing, mm -hmm. put their money into intra-company development that in the long run actually helps the loan officer more, but it's tough to see in the short run. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you see any mortgage products come to the space in the next 20, you know, excuse me, 2023, 2024 that look different than what we currently see right now? No, you know, there's talk about 40 year mortgages, but really it's just, it's just tweaks on the existing 30 year right. mortgage. And, and last year, intermediate arms were hot, you know, 315171 mm -hmm. when the yield curve was steep and rates were going up. And so those, those intermediate arm loans looked very attractive from a rate perspective, but that died down with the yield curve changing. Yep. Um, but no, I don't see any new products. Uh, I think, I think companies are getting better at looking at, you know, things like non-QM, jumbo, mm -hmm. bond programs, uh, and so on construction to perm companies are open up, rever opening up reverse mortgage divisions. Mm -hmm. So they've got this manufacturing facility. The question is how can they best utilize it, keep people employed and help any clients that come through the door? Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think a lot of our audience probably, uh, when I ask that question, I think the fairness is there's a lot of products that sit on the shelf 
uh, if you may, in, in the capital markets and in the agency side. Like the two one buy down that got all the rage at the beginning of the year. That that's been a product before. It's not like we haven't seen that in the industry. And then it comes back out forty year product. That's a product we've seen before. We're just bringing it right. back out to the public. These aren't new products being created. Just to create some clarity right. for our audience here. It's just when they make their way to the market again. Um, last thing here as I end with, uh, we have a slogan around here that we use is the news is not your friend. And uh, we think there's a lot of negativity, a lot of noise in the industry. You know, what? what's your thought in the new world of news um, and, and what it provides to the general consumer? Does it provide uh, quality reporting and accurate information or is it something that is uh, definitely, um, how can I say it, have an agenda when it comes out? Uh, unfortunately, I think it has an agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has has become worse as the years have gone by when you have news sources that are trying to have you click click on the story because of a sensationalist headline mm-hmm. or a slant that is put on it for political reasons, whether it's left or right. The there are so many news stations, whether they're on the radio, TV, in print, you know, this 24-7 news cycle. Uh, you have thousands and thousands of people who are spitting out information and news sources that are out there who are trying to get you to watch or listen to them. And it's important for people to be discerning when it comes to where their news comes from. I tend to just look at the headlines and make make up my opinions from that. But some of the headlines can be misleading. You know, mm-hmm. home prices plunging. Well, when you actually read the story about home prices plunging, it's actually the appreciation rate has slowed from, you know, we Correct. were up 20% in 2020 and up 20, 20, uh, up 20% in 2021. And so appreciation is going to slow to 5%. Well, that's not, yeah, it's plunged, but you know what? I'm fine with 5% appreciation. <laughs> right. But, but I looked at that headline and thought, oh my gosh, you know, what, you know, what's plunging here? Um, so I think I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say the news is not your friend because the commentary that I put out every day, you know, www.robchrisman.com, I, I try to give people the facts and let them make their own minds up about what those facts mm-hmm. may, how those facts may influence their lives and, and their lives of their borrowers. No, that's wonderful. We always say, read the headline, dive deeper and look who the author is and research that author uh, before you start really kind of absorbing what they're wanting you to understand. And in your case, you know, at uh, at, at the Christman Report, you know, or Christman Commentary, excuse me, you know, how many, you have over, is it over 80,000 subscribers to that newsletter? Uh, thereabouts. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> you're, you're, a, you're an avid source for our industry and uh, it's greatly appreciated on my front. I, I definitely enjoy uh, the commentary you put out. And, uh, you know, if you're a lender, you probably see it in the Mortgage Daily News that comes out. Uh, it's one of the, the, the last segments of the three on the email that comes out every day um, that, com- that comes from uh, Rob. And it's, it's really wonderful. And if our audience wants to hear more from you or get more from you, do you mind letting them know where they can go? I know you mentioned it earlier, but. Yeah, it's just www.robchrisman.com. And there, there's a little subscribe button on there if they if they want to sign up. But yeah, robchrisman.com. That'll also be in the show notes. Uh, that will also be on um, the notes in the podcast as well. So you can click on that and do that. Uh, and if you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast. Uh, just right-click, share, send it in the form of a text and subscribe at the top and leave us your comments. We'd greatly appreciate that. And if you rate this a five-star, uh, we would absolutely approve that as well. And for, for people still watching, um, that's not some kind of fire going on behind me. We've had a lot of rain in the West 
And that's actually a puddle, a big puddle that's outside that's reflecting the sunlight. Oh, wow. And it's a little bit windy. And that's uh, that's what's going on behind me. So I apologize. I, no, no, no. I actually thought it was like the way the light was hitting. I thought you had like a mirror in the background. The light was hitting that. So no, it was, no. Uh, it's re- reflecting off a puddle. Well, thank you for clarifying. Uh, Rob, your son also has a podcast that I listen to. I think it's great as well. Robbie has a podcast. Do you mind sharing that with our audience? Yeah, it's just it was actually in the in the daily commentary in the opening paragraph every day. Okay, great. So there's a link link there, but he does a good job with it, just as you do a good job with yours. Hey, I, I greatly appreciate that. It means a lot. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, it was an absolute honor having you. I really enjoyed our conversation, uh, and I know our audience is going to love it as well. So thank you so much. Okay. I got one more shot. I'm gonna make it. One more chance. I'm gonna take it. And when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah